Welcome to IMTV Radio, bringing you the latest analysis from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the international Marxist tendency. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes, or visit www.socialist.net. This year, and in fact right now, uh, this point of this year, marks the 30th anniversary uh, of the Tiananmen Square protests. And these were the biggest student protests probably in world history. Um, at one point, 90% of students in Beijing were thought to be participating in the protests, and there were some protests in Beijing of over a million people. And in 1989, China was at a crossroads because for 40 years after the revolution of 1949, um, the Stalinist methods of, of, of running the planned economy uh, that China had uh, after the revolution had really brought the economy to, uh, and the whole regime really, to, to uh, an impasse. Um, it's true that the revolution, which is one of the greatest events in human history, did free China from imperialism, which had dominated and suffocated China for the past 100 years. Um, and I think that the strength of, to, of China today uh, actually still depends upon that event because, because it freed the state uh, from that kind of uh, dependency and the, and the corruption and everything that it had before 1949. It made a very independent and powerful state, uh, which is the reason why um, they've had some success uh, recently. Um, so that's true. Um, but nevertheless, it was a Stalinist regime from the beginning, um, modelling itself really on, 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 on the Soviet Union, which of course already existed and, and, and inspired the Chinese Communist Party. And the trouble with a, a running a planned economy, uh, when you've abolished capitalism, with a bureaucracy, and I don't have time to go into the details of exactly how this came about, because mostly we're talking about Tiananmen Square, but what you need to know is that the running a planned economy bureaucratically uh, and without workers' democracy uh, makes the, the economy incredibly inflexible um, and prone to economic disasters. And that, a very good example of that is, is the Great Leap Forward um, the, under Mao's uh, leadership, in which basically a lot, of, um, a lot of quite crazy economic policies were pursued uh, and there was no possibility of criticizing and changing these policies. Of course, there were no internal, real internal elections. There was no real freedom of speech. There was no workers' democracy, essentially. So workers had to implement the decisions from above. Uh, and these policies were sometimes disastrous. Uh, and then you also had the Cultural Revolution uh, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, uh, which also reflected the, the problems of a bureaucratic uh, uh, domination of, of, of a planned economy because in such a regime and we see it also with the Soviet Union under Stalin you have these constant zigzags of policy you know sudden lurches from one direction to the next and that's because there's no possibility of debating uh, and voting on decisions and so differences within the bureaucracy are kept hidden uh, and have to emerge in an explosive manner and then, of course, suddenly the bureaucracy realises it needs to change course uh, and denies ever having done the previous uh, policy. Uh, and that's kind of what the Cultural Revolution was like. It was an attempt, uh, it was basically an internal battle between different wings of the Chinese bureaucracy. Um, 
being waged uh, in a very desperate fashion. And this created a lot of turmoil in society and, and, and exhausted people. And so by the time of Mao's death in 1976, which is also when the Cultural Revolution came to an end, I think Chinese society was exhausted with this experience. I think that uh, the, Com the Communist Party enjoyed enormous uh, authority and support at the beginning of the revolution. Um, but I think by this time, a lot of that had disappeared. And there was a sense that China was... Um, had gone down a wrong path or there was something deeply wrong basically, something had to change. Of course it was vague in most people's minds but there was a, a sense that something had to change. And in particular in the bureaucracy, right, the one wing of the bureaucracy that was, it was basically attacked by Mao and the Cultural Revolution then immediately came to power or within two years had come to power. Deng Xiaoping was, was, at, was purged twice in the Cultural Revolution as a so-called capitalist roader and probably not without reason. He probably was more in favour of some capitalist measures uh, in the economy. And he was purged twice. It's very telling that within two years of Mao's death, he became the leader of China. Uh, that really shows that there was a certain strength of feeling in the bureaucracy, uh, that things had gone too far and they needed to make accommodations with the West, get investment from the West and basically open up to capitalism. And that's what really what happened. Mao's death, I think, opened uh, floodgates. In this, uh, with regards to capitalism. So at this point, there are two options for, for, for China. It could, could go down the route of, of workers' democracy, of you know, liberating the masses with, with democratic control of the workplaces, which would also serve to boost production uh, and, and, and limit uh, you know, or, or check you know, bad economic policies and, 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 and give an incentive to working and participating in, in running society. Uh, but obviously the bureaucracy, with its privileges and its power, feared any option like that, would never take it seriously, um, because it, it might lead to the ending of the privileges of the bureaucracy. It might lead to the overthrow of the regime or the, uh, the ch change in personnel at the top and a reduction in their privileges, a massive reduction in their privileges. So we're never gonna, really going to go down that route. Uh, so the other option they had was opening up to capitalism, uh, getting investment from the West, advanced technology, you know, allowing the market to sort of uh, basically give an incentive to production um, uh, in, in the Chinese economy, uh, to increasing production, that is. Um, and so basically that's what Deng did. He began to open up to capitalism, not necessarily with a conscious plan of becoming a fully-fledged capitalist economy. It's very hard to know. Um, what was the truth in that, but that was the path that they started to go down. And it's just kind of a slippery slope because there's a certain logic to capitalism, you know, once you open up, you have to kind of open up more and more and more because if you want to make a success of it, then, you know, you've got to lower taxes, make it a healthy, bus friendly business environment, etc. But the, the reform that was begun by Deng was quite tentative at first, in fact, throughout the 80s, was very tentative. Uh, it didn't really see any privatizations of state-owned enterprises or layoffs of workers. They, they actually had a phrase for it, um, reform without losers. In other words, don't you know, subject the economy to too much of a brace of a, of a bracing of capitalism. So basically what they did is it was a bit like the new economic policy in, in Russia uh, after the revolution where they, they allowed uh, peasants and you know, local enterprises, uh, in, in, especially in rural areas, to flourish. They allowed them to keep their profits. They allowed peasants to sell at market rates rather than handing over you know, at, um, um, at prices set by the government. 
And so gradually throughout the 80s, there was an accumulation of wealth, especially in the countryside. There was, you know, some growth of some of some businesses, basically small businesses, quite you know, like uh, low low value production. But that gradually uh, began to develop, and spe public spending in turn was also cut back. Um, this also went hand in hand with a mild political liberal liberalisation, which isn't really known very much today in the West that that was taking place. And that took several forms. First of all, the Chinese Communist Party began to withdraw from the control of, um, of businesses and state-owned enterprises, meaning that the manage, the how you would determine who would be the manager of a workplace would no longer be who was the leader of the Communist Party in that area, but it would be who was, you know, like it is in any other like, like Western firm. You, you, you interview people and, and who you consider to be the best candidate gets the job. That was the idea anyway. Basically, they were trying to cultivate a kind of bourgeois class or, or a sort of management, a layer of management who were interested not really in any kind of ideology or, or a commitment to the Communist Party and the regime, but were just interested in efficiency and making money, essentially. Uh, and the idea was to establish a meritocracy in this way. Um, so they began to do that, and that therefore inevitably weakened the Communist Party's control over society, um, as we'll see. Uh, it also led uh, to the, the flourishing of thousands of independent newspapers. Of course, we're still subject to the censor to a certain degree, but independent newspapers were, were created in, a, in the same way that small little businesses could be created in the countryside. Um, and, uh, and in general, liberals, I think, were encouraged by the government. They were allowed to speak out more. Um, uh, for example, uh, intellectuals would tour, you know, like professors and dissident intellectuals, liberals essentially, would tour universities uh, and speak to thousands of people at, at lecture theatres. Although it's important to point out that um, there were never socialists or left-wingers who were allowed to speak. It was always pro-capitalist. But they were, they were genuine dissidents. They didn't, you know, they were, they were against the regime, but they were allowed to speak. Um, and I think the reason for this was essentially that the governments wanted, was still kind of waging a battle with the, Mao, the hardline Maoists. And they saw the liberals, the intellectuals, the people who were in favor of capitalism, that, that they would be obviously in favor of this policy, this gradual policy of, of introducing capitalism or elements of capitalism. And therefore, it would actually be good for the regime to allow these people a bit more freedom. It would get them on side, essentially, be, be an ally against the hardline Maoists. Um, but, you know, this is a complex process, not easy to control, and with it comes, at the time, a certain soul-searching in Chinese society, which was kind of a continuation, I think, of the soul-searching that had been taking, taking place ever since the shock of the Opium Wars in the 1840s. There was a, uh, after that, there was this kind of questioning amongst Chinese intellectuals um, and bureaucrats as to why they had this formerly such a powerful... Uh, empire had been so humiliated by British imperialism. And that continued right up until the, the, uh, the Chinese Revolution in 1949 when it kind of came to an end. But I think it kind of re-emerged here and it was related to a criticism of the communist regime. It was a, a soul searching that was saying, well, what have we done wrong? You know, why have we gone down this path and look at how well America's doing? And, you know, it was that kind of, it was a pro-Western kind of outlook, not necessarily in all of society, but at certain layers of the middle class. Um, there was, uh, for example, a TV show which passed the censor called River Elegy, 
which is a kind of monologue which basically questioned uh, Chinese civilization and said that you know, they had taken a wrong path. They should have taken the path of the seas and not the rivers. That was why it's called river elegy. In other words, should have been open to world trade, like countries like Britain were, rather than rivers, meaning internal trade. Um, and that, was a, that became a huge hit within Chinese society. So all of this was going on, and there was a kind of, yeah, there was an opening up, but it was beginning to get a bit dangerous, I think, uh, from the point of view of the regime. Um, uh, <clears throat> we should, I should also add that as these freedoms were being granted, freedoms were being taken away from workers. The right to strike, for example, was abolished in 1982, uh, just as other freedoms are being granted. Uh, that the right to strike was never necessarily genuine, uh, particularly under the communist regime, but it's still significant that they formally abolished that right. And that was because they anticipated that workers might oppose some of these policies. Um, and indeed they would, because whilst all this was going on, uh, there were a lot of problems. It wasn't plain sailing, like we might imagine, seeing as how powerful China is now. Far from it. There were massive increases in inequality, and also, uh, which was not normal. China was one of the most equal countries in the world at the time, so that was very unsettling and strange for people. Uh, and also, several bouts of inflation, of very high inflation throughout the 80s, which was a product of opening up to capitalism uh, and loosening credit, basically. Um, uh, and as a result, real urban incomes actually declined, for, especially for working-class people. Uh, and also, intellectuals and students, whilst they were initially enthusiastic about this process, uh, they actually did quite badly out of it. In the Cultural Revolution, intellectuals and students, uh, especially established intellectuals, were vilified, as you probably know. They were you know, painted as basically uh, enemies of the people, bourgeois, essentially, and you know, often sent to the countryside to do, um, to do humble work. Um, and when that ended, and when Deng Xiaoping came in, the idea was, well, that's all over now, and, and, and we're no longer going to be oppressed. Uh, and actually, China's going to open up, it's, the economy's going to develop, it's going to get lots of investment from the West. They'll need lots of you know, engineers and highly educated people for that. And so there was a huge increase in enrolment at universities, and this was encouraged by the state. The state obviously also anticipated that it would need these people. And so China, throughout the 80s, built an average of one extra university every single week. Um, and, you know, vast, vast increase in the numbers of students in Chinese society took place. But the reality was there was no jobs for them. Uh, it's something that's familiar to students in today's society. Um, basically, this, this capitalist economy that was beginning to develop within China uh, was a very primitive one. Uh, and it wasn't one that necessarily had much of a need for, you know, highly trained engineers. It was more like the people who were getting rich were like people who were selling lighters on the streets and things like that. Actually, if you look at, if you read about the history of a lot of Chinese billionaires today, you often find that they started out with that kind of uh, business. And, um, and so there were phrases that were going around, such as, those who produce missiles earn less than those who sell tea eggs. And those who hold scalpels earn less than those who hold eel knives. So there was a certain resentment, a sense of being cheated, uh, and that there was no jobs, basically, for these people. Um, uh, and that obviously led, uh, contributed to the movement in the late 80s. So there was a lot of discontent, actually, in the 80s, despite this initial euphoria, at least amongst the middle class, about the opening up. Um, and there were several big student movements. For example, in, in 1986 to 7, there was a very big student movement, not as big as 1989, um, throughout the country. And um, 
there was also many protests against inflation that took place. Uh, and in, anyway, this student movement that took place in, in 86, 87, um, led to the uh, removal of who, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name quite right, but who Yao Bang, who was the premier of, of China at the time, uh, basically the prime minister, he was removed from his position because he was seen as too liberal and too soft. And the regime concluded at this time that this liberalization was getting out of hand now. People were having protests and you know, it was too far. Uh, so they removed him, uh, but he remained, importantly, he remained on the Politburo. Um, despite losing his position as premier. And, uh, and also a number of the leaders of that movement and the intellectuals that led it uh, were, uh, like the professors that is, were arrested and put in jail. Uh, and in 1988 and 89, there was a petition going around for the release of these people who were put, into, put in jail. Uh, and that petition was actually supported by the uh, uh, Beijing University and many other prominent universities. So it was pretty, you know, had widespread support. And basically it was this that, f that created the activists that would lead the 1989 uh, movement. Uh, Hu Yaobang then died in 1989, uh, and he'd become a bit of a core celebre for the, for the, for the student activists. Um, and, uh, and basically, First of all, they were moved by his death and they were, you know, upset about it and everything. But also, they realised quite intelligently that his uh, funeral provided the perfect pretext for a mass demonstration. Because he remained, as I said, on the Politburo, that meant that his death was officially something to be mourned. So they realised that if they staged a demonstration, you know, which was a demonstration about how badly he was treated, um, but it was also could be spun at the same time as a demonstration, as, as, a, as a mourning for a member of the Politburo. They realised they couldn't really be repressed in the same way. It would look very bad. Uh, and so that was what they did, and, and it worked. It, so in the lead up to his funeral, so in the sort of week between his death and his funeral, there were, there were a few student protests ga you know, gaining momentum for this planned demonstration on, on his actual funeral with, only, with a few hundred people. And one of them, it was outside the Xinhua Gate, which is basically the entrance to the government complex, which is right next to Tiananmen Square. Uh, a few students were roughed up uh, by, by p police, I think, and were, you know, no, no one died, but they were beaten up. They went back to their, to their university with blood on their shirt and everything. And this enraged a lot of the students, and it further swelled the movement, essentially. Also, interestingly, as these students were protesting, uh, a number of workers saw it and, and began to get organised around these students, which also shows the depth of feeling that there was in the working class at the time, because you know, within about two or three days, these, these, these workers had actually started printing leaflets in support of the students. So, you know, that's a very rapid mobilisation. And I'll read out their, 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 um, a quote about one of their leaflets at the time. In one of the handbills they distributed, they blamed the steady decline of people's living standards and uncontrolled inflation on the long-term control of a dictatorial bureaucracy. In order to safeguard the extravagant lifestyles of a minority, the statement continued, the rulers issued large numbers of bonds, like treasury bonds, to take away forcibly what little income the workers have. The workers then punctuated this handbill with, de with demands to stabilise prices and to make public the incomes and expenditures of the high state officials and their families. And the, the leaflet goes on. The workers have asked how much money one of Deng Xiaoping's sons had bet at a Hong Kong racetrack, whether Zhao Ziyang had paid any money for the privilege of paying golf, 
how many villas were maintained for political leaders and at what cost, and what were the personal incomes and expenditures of top officials. They may, the workers also wanted an explanation of how the party leadership viewed the shortcomings of their economic reform and why the proposed measures to control inflation never seemed to work. They expressed fear about China's mounting international debt and asked how much this amounted to per person and how its repayment would affect living standards in the years ahead. So it's quite a marked... I should also point out that the, the students' demands, which we also we would have supported, they were nevertheless generally of a liberal democratic character. They were for elections, free press and things like that. Although there was, still, there was one also attacking how rich the leaders of the state were. But it wasn't really anti-capitalist in any way. But you can see clearly with the workers here a, a class difference. They're not really talking about a democracy. Democracy, uh, although they were in favour of democracy, but they're talking about basically the privileges and the inequality that there was in, uh, in society. Anyway, on the day of the funeral, about 100,000 students packed in Tiananmen, into Tiananmen Square as part of this demonstration. And that happened because the universities in Beijing were all kind of concentrated in one area and they basically were able to sort of speak to each other and to gather a huge amount of people to come down to the demonstration and smash through the police lines. Um, and so there's huge numbers of them in the square uh, and there's a lot of things I have to skip over what they did but one thing of particular note is that three of the students walked up to um, I think it was also the Xinhua Gate the, basically the entrance to the government complex and they, they, ha they had a petition calling for, with, with these demands on it calling for democracy and calling for the workers uh, sorry, for the students not to be victimised for demonstrating uh, calling for re-evaluation of Hu Yaobang all these things and they demanded that Li Peng, who was then the premier, um, receive, the, receive this petition. And this is a sort of time-honored tradition in Chinese society of handing in a petition to the government um, that's always, well, supposedly always been respected. Uh, but, but Li Peng never came out and never received the petition. And that genuine, I think it genuinely shocked a lot of the students. It really outraged them. A lot of them were crying. Some of them were punching themselves in the face, you know, getting really worked up. And it was quite an intelligent, I'm not sure how deliberate it was, but it was quite an intelligent tactic because most demonstrations, I don't know if you've, how many you've been on, but a lot of demonstrations have this quite impotent character because it's basically just, we're going to go here, then go there, and then go home. And there's no threat to the government, but if you demand that the government come out and meet you there and then, um, then and then they don't, of course, it puts them on the spot, and it kind of... Ask, ask a question there and then of the government. And so it really raised the movement to a higher level, I believe. Uh, a couple of days later, this is in April, late April, April the 26th, uh, the People's Daily, the main government newspaper, attacked uh, the student movement quite uh, uh, vitriolically and basically threatened uh, a lot of repression, um, obviously expecting that this would scare the students to go away. But in a sign that... Uh, the movement was very powerful and it was almost taking on a revolutionary character. Um, the opposite happened. It enraged the students. And two, uh, the next day, the 27th of April, about 300,000 students came out onto the streets to protest uh, as in, in defiance to this, um, to this editorial. So it didn't work. And basically, at this point, this forces a cr cracks in the regime. The regime begins to be uncertain of what to do. And they basically decide to pursue a policy of concessions in the hope that this will placate the students. It's the classic dilemma of any regime. Do we give concessions, but that might strengthen them, might give them confidence? Do we attack them, but then that might outrage them uh, 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 even more? And so basically, but they decided to make a policy of concession. And the next day, the 28th of April, 
the same newspaper, the People's Daily, published another editorial praising the demonstrations. It's quite an embarrassing admission for the government. Praising the demonstration, basically saying that they were pretty good. These were genuine patriotic demonstrations, just demonstrations against corruption and the like. Um, and, and as a result, the government began to lose control of the media. As I've already said, they had loosened up their control anyway, and new newspapers had appeared, independent newspapers. And basically, this editorial was like a green light for them. It was basically saying, you can go and cover these demonstrations because they're officially okay. Uh, and so they did. And so <clears throat> I would say at this time, the Chinese media actually became far freer than Western media, which, whilst being ostensibly free, is actually dominated and controlled by a tiny uh, group of individuals with shared interests. Uh, and so there was a lot of uh, coverage of the demonstrations, basically promoting them. And as a result, they grew and grew, essentially. Also, parts of the state, lower levels of the state, essentially began to support the demonstrations. There's lots of examples of um, work units being allowed uh, to go and actually use company money to travel to support the go and visit the demonstrations. Huge mem numbers of, of members of the public would turn up to donate to the demonstrations. And amazingly, the All China Federation of Trade Unions, the official trade union of China, donated 100,000 yuan to the demonstrations. Some of this was also because, the, because I should have mentioned that a hunger strike had started. About 3,000 of the students in the square were on hunger strike, uh, really just as a means of getting attention, essentially, and it worked. And the government was afraid of, what, of, of, of students dying, basically. Um, and so they were you know, giving them food and you know, making kind of, again, loosening the restrictions and allowing you know, a local party activists and people to support the demonstrations and, and help them. Um, because they were afraid of what was going on. But quite clearly, this had now gotten really out of hand, and the policy of concession had not worked. From the point of view of the government, this was very dangerous. This was becoming absolutely immense. Um, people were traveling from across China to visit the demonstrations. At one point, 172,000 people traveled from outside Beijing to, to visit the demonstration. So they decided, Deng basically decided, OK, we've got to crush this now, and it's going to lead to violence. Um, and so. By, on the 20th of May, which is about a week after the hunger strike had started, 15,000 troops were moved into Beijing. Or at least they tried to, because they failed. Uh, basically, a spontaneous uprising of, of workers and re residents of Beijing uh, prevented them by erecting barricades uh, and just you know, preventing the soldiers from coming in. They were absolutely overwhelmed by the numbers of people. Uh, and the, some of the residents were fraternizing with them and, and um, you know, even throwing street parties for them on some occasions, bringing them food and water, very intelligently trying to win them over, essentially. And it also shows that this was not just a student movement, but it had mass support throughout Beijing and, and in fact, China as a whole. Um, and uh, 1,400 soldiers uh, refused to fight, and about 100 officers also refused uh, orders to, to fight. So basically, the offensive collapsed, and they had to withdraw these soldiers for, for fear that they would you know, come over fully to the side of the demonstrators. Um, but, and, and at this point, Beijing was really in the control of, of, of the working class and the students, or at least it should have been if they had realized it, if they'd had a party some kind of organization that could, could, could realize the significance of this situation and, uh, and, uh, and you know, actually genuinely control Beijing. I should also point out that in order, although these were spontaneous, these, these barricades, 
some of the students uh, in, the in the demonstrations got hold of a military map and were marking out where they knew soldiers were on the map and were telephoning people in different parts of the city. So it was beginning to come very uh, well organised actually. So it really was the potential to run uh, Beijing under, under workers' control. Um, and there was a certain euphoria, but of course that was uh, naive because uh, a week later, uh, over 10 times as many troops encircled Beijing, that was about up to about 250,000 of them. And this time, they were troops taken from other parts of China, from the provinces, you know, from remote part, parts of China. Uh, who, uh, soldiers who didn't speak the same dialect as the people in Beijing, and therefore it wouldn't be so easy for them to fraternise. Uh, and it has to be said also, some mistakes were made mistakes of a spontaneous character showing the need, I think, for discipline and, and a revolutionary party. Mistakes were made by the residents because in some cases the residents actually attacked and even killed some of these soldiers. So this obviously didn't exactly help uh, with the fraternisation. But the main point is they brought in vast numbers of soldiers from very far away who didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, still, they had to be, many of them had to be moved into the city in plain clothes because if they went in, in, in you know, marching in, it, again, it might prove impossible or very, very difficult. So they actually went in in plain clothes without any weapons. But obviously they need weapons. So the weapons then had to be bussed in separately. But when they were bussed in separately, in several cases, uh, residents actually found these buses filled with AK-47s and they, they stopped them and seized the weapons. And again, you see that, that example, the possibility that was there for the arming of the work and the taking over of, and, and controlling of, of Beijing uh, by the local population, but nothing was really done. In fact, in some cases, the AK-47s, when taken over, were then handed into the police, which is um, probably, not, probably not tactically the, the best thing to have done. Um, Anyway, uh, <clears throat> also they should have at this point called a general strike, I, I think, uh, and I'll come on to that later on um, because th that was also in the air. Anyway, skirmishes broke out as the army did advance through Beijing uh, and many unarmed civilians were shot dead, uh, often as they were running away from the police with their back to them. And by June the 4th, uh, the, the army had had surrounded the square, where there were still about 80,000 uh, people protesting. Uh, and basically, at this point, the game was up and there was nothing that they could do. And the leaders of the students uh, realised this and um, basically agreed. They went to the, to, the, to the soldiers and they said, look, can you agree a, a particular part of the square that we can leave from and we'll leave in peace? And then that was announced on a tannoy to the students by the military. Some of the students wanted to stay and fight and, and declared it to be a sellout, but I think basically they realised the game was up and they had to leave. And they left more or less peacefully. Overall, 500 to 1,000 people were probably killed, but very few of them actually in the square. It was mostly as they advanced through the streets of Beijing, which again demonstrates, I think, the, the mass support that the movement had. It wasn't just a bunch of students in a square in the centre of the city. Um, so, yeah, and that brought it to an end. So I'll just finish on the lessons uh, and the, the mistakes of the movement, basically. It was predominantly a student movement. It was led by students, it was called by students and led by students. Uh, as I said, vast number, I mean, 90% of the Beijing students allegedly were demonstrating at one point. It was immense. There were demonstrations of over a million people, as I said. <clears throat> and that really demonstrates the, the, 
the, the fact that students can play a leading role in a revolution, that they, they can, you know, and there's many other examples of it in history. France in 68 is a very famous example of where students kickstart a revolution. And they, have, they can do that because, A, they don't, they're not burdened with the defeats of the past. They're probably a bit fresher, a bit more radical. But also, they don't have a family to look after. They probably, they probably don't, either don't have a job or the job is, is not so many hours. And they can afford to stay and do things like camping in a square. You know, or going on regular, regular demonstrations. Uh, and that demonstrates the effectiveness or the power of students, really, their significance. Um, however, there are also limitations to the students. And if it's a, merely a student movement, I would say it's pretty much always doomed to defeat. Uh, it, student movements always tend to be very loose. You know, students are only at university for a few years. Uh, they don't work together either. They tend to work com effectively com competitively. Um, so there aren't really, they don't tend not to be very stable and um, coherent organisations that, that, that have legitimacy, you know, where you can elect leaders and remove, I mean obviously in the West there are student unions, there weren't um, necessarily student unions there, and, but we know what student unions are like here as well, they don't really represent students to be honest. So there's this very loose character to the student movement. There's a lot of self-appointed leaders, you know, and there are many, many different student uh, leaderships that declared themselves leaders of the movement. There was a hunger strike committee, there was the Beijing Students Autonomous uh, Federation. There was many, many different uh, organizations that sprung up and then would fall apart. Um, they were constantly bickering and denouncing each other. And again, that reflects the instability of a student movement, the lack of any experience, the lack of any stable organizations, I think. They're very egoistic as well. I think you should also bear in mind that Chinese students at the time represented an elite of society, or as I said, they didn't necessarily live very well and get very good jobs, but they were a very small section, a very highly educated and a very small section of Chinese society, not really like today. Um, and therefore more, you know, prone to perhaps slightly more snobbish and petty bourgeois mentality, essentially. Um, there were certainly the leaders anyway, not necessarily the bulk of the students. Uh, there was one point where they actually had a, a televised negotiation with uh, leaders of the Communist Party, which was a demand they had that was actually granted. But th this, th this negotiation actually broke down, because, not because of anything by the, the, the government, because the students started denouncing one another on TV and in front of the Communist Party leaders. And many of the journalists who'd gone there sympathetic to the students actually left quite uh, embarrassed by their conduct. Um, so this, this is not to cast aspersions on the students as a whole. They were quite heroic and obviously many of them sacrificed their lives for this. But a layer of the student leaders, I think, play, played quite a bad role. Um, and uh, also I think they got absorbed in the occupation. And this is something you see in occupations even today, obviously on a far smaller less significant scale. But the tendency of an occupation is for it to become an end in itself, something you try to maintain, you know, and it, is, it requires a lot of organisation. I mean, of course, a strike and a demonstration requires organisation as well, but I think it's not quite as all-consuming. Of course, there weren't even any access to toilet facilities in this square, so by the end of the month it became uh, a genuine health hazard. Um, and this absorbed all of their time. All of their meetings were taken up with just discussions about whether or not to continue the occupation. They weren't discussing how to broaden its support. They weren't discussing how to connect with the workers, how to organise a general strike. They weren't discussing what political demands to make. It was just, do we continue the occupation? And it became a self-fulfilling pro prophecy as well, because those who didn't want to continue it just left, and new ones came in who did, and obviously, therefore, they always voted to continue the occupation. Uh, and that's something we see, I think, uh, on a smaller scale in um, 
occupations that you still have today uh, at universities. So these are some of the limitations, but the main limitation, because all of this is, is not really that important, had they connected with the working class, but they didn't. And the, the tragedy is the opportunity was genuinely there. These workers who I already mentioned and I quoted from had by now announced uh, they'd been holding regular meetings and they'd announced that they were the Beijing Autonomous Workers Federation. Um, and they basically, you could go to the square, find them, and sign up to be a member of the Beijing Autonomous Workers Federation by showing them your work card, you know, your card to show which work unit you belonged to. And then you would be signed up. And supposedly, by late May, they had 20,000 members. Um, of course, these were fairly tenuous links, but these were actual members, people who'd gone there to sign up. And they had links with workplaces all over the city. They had a megaphone uh, at the edge of the square and they had a printing press by, which they were using to distribute leaflets such as the, the, this one that, that said, and I quote, um, uh, we denounce the special privileges, tours abroad for children and spouses and babysitters and the keeping of mistresses by high level officials. We have calculated carefully based on Marx's capital, the rate of exploitation of workers. We discovered that the servants of the people swallow all the surplus value produced by the people's blood and sweat. We, uh, we declare that there are only two classes, the rulers and the ruled. The political campaigns of the last 40 years amount to a political method for suppressing the people. History has shown that the Communist Party is fond of settling accounts after the, after the autumn harvest, which is a, a, phrase in chi a Chinese phrase. But history's final accounting has yet to be accomplished. So they were very, very bold, uh, kind of had an anarchistic character, basically, a kind of syndicalist character. Um, they also helped the students. At one point, eight students were arrested and put in jail. And some of the workers from the, this federation uh, got motorbikes and drove to the jail and, free, and forcibly freed the students that were arrested. So they were quite heroic as well. Uh, and they tried to build for a general strike. They raised the demand for a general strike and they were trying to build for that. Uh, and they also called for workers' control of industry. Um, however, uh, it has to be said that the student leaders behaved in a, a lamentable fashion. I think this reflects the, the snobbery that they had that I mentioned before. They actually, on occasion, refused to meet with them. They saw them as a kind of a rival, basically. This is our movement, right? We were the ones that set it up. And they, they, were, they were jealous, basically, of the burgeoning power of this, um, of this workers' federation. They also, I believe, saw workers as stupid and ignorant, basically. And again, I think I have to emphasize there was a much greater educational divide than there would be today. Uh, a lot of these workers probably you know, left school at quite a young age, uh, you know, and these were kind of quite elite students from Beijing University. And so there was this, and, and to, to be honest, mo a lot of the student leaders were pro-capitalist. Uh, they were liberal, basically. And they, were, they saw that there was a socialistic character to what these workers were saying. They didn't like it, and they were worried that this, this was actually reminiscent of, of things like the Cultural Revolution, which it wasn't, but that's how they saw it. Uh, and so they actually denied them a space within the square, and they had to set up their megaphone on the edge of the square. Um, and, and that's really the tragedy of, of Tiananmen Square, that this alliance of workers and students was within touching distance. Of course, some of the work students did support them. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of students there. And there were alliances formed and, and uh, help given from students. Uh, but the, many of the most prominent leaders um, you know, were not um, very helpful. And I'll point out that if you look at the history 
of a lot of, if you, you know, when I was researching for this, you, you read about the leaders of the, the famous leaders of, of Tiananmen Square. You find that a lot of them now run hedge funds in New York and things like that. And I'm not exaggerating, that's genuinely what some, quite a few of them do. So these are quite elite, you know, uh, prestigious students uh, with an illustrious career ahead of them. So that, I think, goes some way to explaining this, this attitude that, 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 that they had. And again, I'm at pains to emphasize, it's not all the students, but the most um, prominent leaders, basically, who put themselves forwards. Um, but yeah, that's the tragedy of this, that this, this alliance was within touching distance. Um, and the lack of a party and the lack of, you know, um, good leaders, basically, of the students' movement prevented this from happening. Uh, but the workers were the only true allies of this movement, the only ones who really came and supported them. They erected the barricades, as I mentioned. They formed the Beijing Autonomous Workers' Federation, called for a general strike, and they put their lives on the line. Many of them were executed after, the, the workers' leaders were executed after uh, the movement, and, or were exiled, such as Han Dongfang, who now runs the China Labour Bulletin, which you might have seen. Um, anyway, he, yeah, they, they, were, they really put their lives on the line, whereas the intellectuals who, who started the movement, the professors who wrote this petition to free students uh, and other professors that were arrested in the 86-87 movement, these, these intellectuals who were very pro, more pro-capitalist even than the, than the worst of the students, um, they basically concluded the whole thing was a horrible mistake. Uh, that, you know, basically China was going down a path towards capitalism and actually the, the demonstrations made things worse. If they just kind of been quiet and allowed capitalism to flourish, this would naturally bring with it democracy, which is the general idea of the liberals in the West as well. And their, their idea with letting China into the World Trade Organization was always that, you know, China would just automatically become a liberal democracy after sort of 10 or 20 years or something, which clearly hasn't happened. That's, they're still waiting for this and it's not occurred, but that, that was their outlook. We're not gonna lift a finger to, to support this movement as soon as it gets dangerous. And actually we're gonna spurn it and, and, and see it as a horrible mistake. So the, the, the liberals basically, as always, never really uh, allies in the revolution. It was only the workers that, ha that had nothing to lose and that were really determined to see it through to the end. Because the, the lack of this alliance, the, the kind of inability to build up a, a strong organisation of the workers, I think, doomed, doomed the movement to defeat. But that is really the lesson of uh, the Tiananmen Square movement. Subscribe or download the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.